Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 34. In your pew Bibles, that's page 463. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let me ask you a question. Have you, have you ever had a close call in your life? The kind of experience where if you weren't in the exact spot in that exact time at that exact moment, things could have been a whole lot worse. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, maybe you, maybe you know somebody who has. My guess is that a lot of us in this room have had some close call stories of our own that we could share this morning. Close calls, they're, they're really common. In fact, just two weeks ago, I had, I had reached out to Eric Sibilla. Eric uh, was the, the guy up here playing drums this morning um, because I, I had remembered a close call that he had last summer. Really bad accident that, by God's grace, uh, he walked away from unscathed. Uh, and I wanted to know if he'd be okay uh, with, with me sharing that story with you this morning. Thankfully, he was. Uh, and so I'm going I'm to share with you the Cliff Notes uh, version of Eric's story this morning. I, I want you to listen to the, the chilling details of Eric's close call from last summer in Eric's own words. They'll be up on the screen. He said, the day is July 6, 2022. I had just completed my last clinical rotation of physical therapy out near Reading, which was about an hour commute each way, each day. I had just finished working out after a 12-hour shift, so I was really exhausted. 
As I was driving home, I was momentarily distracted. I didn't realize my car was veering toward the median of the highway of Route 76. I tried to course correct, but it was too late. What happens next is still a blur. After hitting the median, my car started spinning out of control. That wasn't the worst of it. I then ended up rolling twice and somehow, by God's grace, landing right side up, right in the middle of the highway. Somehow, I was able to walk away from the wreckage without nothing more than a bruised sternum from the airbag deploying and a relatively tiny scratch on my left wrist from, from some scattered, from shattered glass. To this day, I still don't know how I didn't sustain major injuries. God spared me from an awful thing. He dealt with me much more mercifully than I deserve. Praise be to God. Amen. That's a close call. And an incredible display of God's powerful deliverance. Psalm 34 is set against the backdrop of probably one of the scariest close call moments of David's life. Psalm 34 then, it's this this song of gladness, of thankfulness in response to tasting and seeing up close and personal God's deliverance. I say this song is, is set against the backdrop of one of the scariest close call moments of David's life because because of what, uh, what he says just before verse 1. Maybe you missed it when, when Kate read it for us, or, or maybe it stood out to you as, as being a little strange. Either way, the words that come just before verse 1 in, in, in the Psalms, the fancy word is superscription, these words are just as important as the words that follow. In fact, they often give us some really helpful contextual clues to help us better understand what is going on. So don't skip the superscription, okay? Especially with Psalm 34. Here David gives us some really important historical contextual clues that will help us make sense of this psalm. So take a look at what he says. He says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And you're thinking, what? What is going on here? What is this about? If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Psalm 34. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 21. First Samuel 21. Here we, get, here we get a glimpse into all the frightening and bizarre details of the story that, that's behind Psalm 34. So picture this. Uh, David, he's running for his life from Saul, from King Saul. He's He's in full-out panic mode. Saul, remember, was Israel's first king, and he, he was an absolute failure of a king. So God chooses a better king that would one day lead his people. He chooses David. Young David eventually uh, uh, joins the rank of Saul's military leadership. He's successful, and that enraged Saul. And over time, Saul becomes more and more jealous of David and his successes. Eventually, David finds out from Saul's son, Jonathan, that his life is in danger and that he needs to get out of Dodge quickly. So David flees his his homeland, but he ends up taking refuge in enemy territory, the nation of Philistia. Now, David's got a, a, a reputation 
with the Philistines. And it's, it's not a good one. There's no one in Philistia that David is tight with, okay? We're probably all familiar with uh, David and Goliath, that story. David didn't make any friends that day when he cut the head clean off of the champion, champion of the Philistine army. Or maybe you remember the story of, of what Saul demanded David do before he could marry uh, his, his daughter. Most dads are like, you, you, just, you need to ask for my blessing before you marry my daughter. Saul's like, you need to kill 100 Philistines and bring back, I'm not kidding, bring back their foreskins to me before you marry my daughter. David didn't spare the giant, and he ended up marrying Saul's daughter. Suffice it to say, David is not in friendly territory. He's not among friends. So David seems to be running from one trouble to the next. 1 Samuel 21, uh, verses 12 through 15, tell us what happened next. By the way, uh, Abimelech in Psalm 34 is Akish, king of Gath, in 1 Samuel 21. These, these are the same people. Apparently, Abimelech is just another name or title for the, for the king of Gath. So let's pick up at verse 12, 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, says this, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. Here's where things get wild. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and make marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. If it were not in this book, I would not believe it. This is some really bizarre stuff, isn't it? David, he's afraid for his life. So he says to himself, I'm going to act mentally insane and pray that God uses that to get me out of this mess. So David works himself up into a frenzy. He's screaming. He's foaming at the mouth. He's clawing at the doors of the gate. He's He's spitting all over himself. That's a really disturbing scene. What does the king say next? Verse 14. Then Akish says to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He's like, guys... I've got enough madmen to deal with, all right? This is the last thing I need on my plate. Another crazed lunatic. Get him out of my sight. So David is released. Now that is a close call, right? What would you say in a moment like this? What spills out of your mouth when you know that God has just saved you from something serious like this? Probably going to pray a little differently, right? Maybe sing with a little bit more passion. Psalm 34 is what spills out of David's heart and mouth. It was his glad response to, to tasting God's sweet deliverance up close and personal, and David invites us to sing along with him. He says so in verse 3. Let's flip back to Psalm 34. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, 
Let us exalt his name together. Psalm 34 can be the song that you and I sing when we taste God's sweet deliverance in our lives. They can be the words that spill out of our hearts and out of our mouths. And so our big idea this morning is this. Those who have tasted God's deliverance savor the God of their deliverance. Those who have tasted God's deliverance savor the God of their deliverance. I'm using words like taste and savor because of what David says in verse 8. It's this pivotal verse in the psalm. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to unpack that a little later. I'm also intentionally using words like deliverance because deliverance is at the heart. It's the heartbeat of this psalm. Did you notice how many times words like deliver or save or redeem show up in this psalm? Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Those who have tasted God's deliverance savor the God of their deliverance. Psalm 34 helps us savor our deliverer in six ways. For David, um, these things are, are personal. They're personal. So I, I want to encourage you this morning, if there's something that, that stands out to you, uh, that resonates with you, maybe more than the other six, um, lock in on that and make it personal this morning. Here, David, he's inviting us, come. Come with me, taste, see, the Lord is good. First this morning, God is great. This is the first thing David wants us to savor about the one who delivers us in the close call moments of our lives, his greatness. God is so great, he's awesome. It's why David begins this psalm with a shout of praise. Look at verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Tasting God's powerful deliverance in our lives should lead us to a deeper commitment to continual praise. That's what David's committing to here. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David wants others to know what he knows. So he says, verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. The word boast there uh, has nothing to do with being arrogant or proud. David's boasting, but he's boasting in another. He's boasting in the Lord. This word is used all over the the Psalms as a way of drawing others into joyful exaltation of God. That's why he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together. Notice who's being 
uh, invited to join in this joyful worship. He says they're the humble. Or maybe your translation says afflicted. Humbled ones. Afflicted ones. Those who have been flattened, brought low, feel their neediness. This is what close call moments in our lives do for us, don't they? If you've ever been flattened, brought low, humbled, you're in good company. David says, come, verse 3, magnify the Lord with me. Let's raise up, let's exalt his name together. When I was a kid, we, we had this, this telescope. Um, it was super cheap, uh, really crappy, but we loved that telescope. On clear nights, my brothers and I, we would go, we would go out into the yard and we would uh, for what seemed like hours, we'd look up at the stars um, through this cheap little telescope. It was great. As, uh, as crappy as this telescope was, it's, it still did its job. It made the big and beautiful things in the sky that were far, far away seem really close, seem really clear. It was really only after those stars and planets became Uh, Close and clear to me did I fully appreciate their bigness, their awesomeness, their beauty. I think moments of tasting God's powerful deliverance in our lives do this for us. They're like the telescope. All of a sudden we see clearly, vividly, the stunning beauty of God. We see his bigness. We see his, his greatness. We see his glory in ways that we hadn't before. So if God has shown you his stunning beauty up close, if you've tasted his awesome, powerful deliverance in your lives, let others in to see the joy that you have in the Lord. Let them taste God's goodness with you. I I need your confidence in the Lord, your joy in the Lord, in the face of adversity. We, as a church, we need to see your joy in the Lord in the face of adversity. That unshakable joy that you've got in the Lord, it might just be the thing that God uses to inspire us, to inspire us as a church to lift up, to exalt the name of the Lord together. So God is great. Savor his greatness. Second this morning, when God powerfully moves in our lives, we should savor him because he's a capable redeemer. Some years back, uh, I read a uh, a really sad and disturbing article about a tragic death of a young British woman. She was visiting the island of Antigua, just celebrating her father's wedding. One evening, she decided to venture out for a quick uh, walk along the peaceful shores. She was alone, the sun is setting, and to her surprise, uh, she steps right into a large sand pit, quicksand. She's in trouble, and she knows it. As fear sets in, you can, you can imagine the panic that she's feeling, right? 
You can hear the, the desperation in her voice as she is crying out for help. Sadly, no one comes to help her because no one is there to hear her. Do you ever feel like, you, you, like you're the woman stuck in quicksand? Like the troubles of life are closing in around you. You are crying out to the Lord in your distress, uh, and it seems like nothing. Nothing is reaching the ears of the Lord. There's only a, a deafening silence on the other end. Does God hear our desperate pleas, our desperate prayers in our distress? Let's find out in verse 4. Here's what David says. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Does God hear your desperate prayers and your distress? Yes, yes, yes. I sought the Lord, David says, and he answered me. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. There's so much comfort to be had in these words. We don't pray to a father who's too far off to hear. We don't pray to a father who can't stand the sound of our voice. When our feeble prayers leave our trembling lips, they inevitably reach the ears of an attentive, loving Father. When our feeble prayers leave our trembling lips, they inevitably reach the ears of a loving, attentive Father. So, Christian, don't wait. Don't wait. Seek Him while you can. Your Father, oh, He delights to listen to your voice. He is near. He loves you. And he loves the sound of your voice. He loves to hear your prayers. He loves to answer. You may not always understand his answer. We may not always like the answer that we get, but his answer is always, always the best thing for us. Check out what David says next. Seems too good to be true. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Really? David, all your fears? All your troubles? I don't know, if we were... If we were to take time and just go back to 1 Samuel and trace out the rest of David's story, we'd see that his days of trouble are far from over. His days of close calls are far from over. Shortly after he escapes from Gath, Saul slaughters a whole bunch of priests because of David. Then Saul pursues David into the wilderness to kill him. Then David, David's forced to hide out in Gath again, only to be chased out. Again, then his friends and family are picked up in a raid. And when we get to the end, chapter 30, his own people are turning against him and trying to stone him to death. God has not delivered David 
from all his fears and all his troubles. David knows this. He knows his days of trouble and pain are far from over. What, what he's saying here is that when I cry out to my God in my distress, he delivers me from today's trouble. Today's trouble. For David, this was more than enough proof that God is a capable rescuer. Think about that for a moment. For David, trusting God, trusting in his sovereign purposes, even in the aftermath of what he had gone through, freed him to rejoice wholeheartedly in today's deliverance, even while tomorrow's troubles were many and not far behind. So Christian, keep trusting in God. Keep trusting, because when the hard and sad and painful days come, that deep trust in God is going to anchor you. It's going to free you to see and savor God's deliverance in your life and to rejoice in it too. Trust now in your today will help you to trust him then with your tomorrows too. Trust in him, savor him, because God is a capable rescuer. Third this morning, God is good all the time. Man, I love, I love and treasure the words that come next. So sweet. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, David says, taste with your spiritual taste buds. See with your spiritual eyes. The Lord is good. Interestingly, he pairs these words, taste and see, together. I think this is fascinating. He could have just said to us, see that the Lord is good. But he doesn't. He invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I wonder if that's because David knows we can't fully appreciate God's goodness until we have gotten a good taste of it ourselves. It's like, it's like that tender, juicy, succulent, mouth-watering chicken nugget. I'm just kidding. Steak. <laughs> Whichever cut you prefer, not chicken nugget, the steak. Um, it might look really good, right? How, how do you know? How do you really know that steak is as good as it looks? You got to taste it, right? And when you do, when that, that morsel of steak hits your tongue and your taste buds explode, it confirms what you know is true. That steak is good. Now, this, God is good regardless of whether we taste and see him to be good or not. Let's be clear on that. But my point is this, we won't fully see and appreciate God's goodness in our lives until we slow down and take time to get a good taste of his goodness ourselves. How do we do that? I want to get after this question with a story. Eugene Peterson, he's one of my favorite authors, he, he tells this story of what it was like watching his dog enjoy a really good bone. Here's what he said. He says, he would, his dog, would show up on our stone lakeside patio carrying or dragging his trophy. 
He was a small dog, and the bone was often nearly as large as, as he was. Anyone who has owned a dog <clears throat> excuse me, knows the routine. He would prance and gamble playfully before us with his prize, wagging his tail, proud of his fine, courting our approval. And of course, we approved. We lavished praise, telling him what a good dog he was. But after a while, sated with our praise, he would drag the bone off 20 yards or so to a more private place and go to work on that bone. He gnawed the bone, turning it over and around, licking it, worrying it. Sometimes uh, we could hear a low rumble or growl, what in a cat would be a purr. He was obviously enjoying himself and in no hurry. After a leisurely couple of hours, he would bury it and then return the next day to take it up again. Now, why, why am I reading this story to you? Because of what Peterson says next. He says, the Bible invites this kind of reading, soft purrs, low growls as we taste and savor, anticipate and take in the sweet, spicy, mouth-watering and soul-energizing morsel of words. What an invite, right? What an invitation. Don't you want to be more like that dog with a bone with this book? I know I do. Soft purrs, low growls, unhurried time with Jesus. Really savoring these mouth-watering, soul-energizing morsel of words. I feel like the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see the eternal value of this. This is how we see that God is good. By ingesting these words deep into our souls one day at a time. So keep getting after this book, church. Spend unhurried time with these words. The invitation is for every one of us this morning. Come and taste. Come and see the Lord is good. One other thing to see here, a beautiful promise. We see that God doesn't withhold anything good from those who fear him and find their refuge in him. Verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. doesn't mean that God will always give us what we want or what we think we need in life. It just means that anything God imagines is good for us. He does not withhold from us. He gives to us. No strings attached. What a promise. Fourth, this morning, God's ways are best for us. David knows this in the face of adversity. Uh, we're going to be tempted to follow the wisdom of the world, but he wants us to see that following God, his way is better. I heard a stat recently that illustrates this point. Uh, it's, it's stated that 54% um, of children born in the U.S. reach their 17th birthday without a married mom uh, and dad. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? I came across then another stat that grieved me even more. Nearly half of American dads younger than 45 say that they have at least one child 
who was born out of wedlock. And the share of fathers living apart from children is more than double what it was so long ago. And that stat was from over 10 years ago. Things don't seem to be getting any better. The story behind the stats is that this is what happens when we reject God's way and embrace the world's way. David knows that following God's way in a world that has gone mad takes a whole lot of faith. It takes a whole lot of courage. And so he, sort of right in the middle of this song, drops some lyrical wisdom on us. Verse 11, he says, Come, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David's saying, stay on God's path. Stay on his path. His ways are always better for you. They're always best for you. The words that we hear next in this psalm might just be some of the most comforting that we'll hear all morning. In verse 15, God says, I see you. I see everything that you're going through. I see your pain. Then he goes, verse 16, he says, I'm with you, and I'm against those who do evil to you. One day, I'm going to judge their evil, and it will be severe. Verse 17, God says in so many words, I don't just see you, I hear you. Remember, when our feeble prayers leave our trembling lips, they inevitably reach the, the loving, attentive ears of our Heavenly Father. Then come, then, then come some of the most comforting words in all the Bible. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When I was young, uh, I was the kind of kid who liked to play hard, and playing hard for me meant falling hard. Um, so I would always be the one landing in the hospital, either with a busted wrist or busted ankle. Um, now I have kids of my own. I still play hard. I just don't fall as hard uh, these days or as often. Uh, but as a kid, I remember falling hard and skinning both of my knees. Terrible feeling, right? Last week, uh, my son Silas did the same thing, took a hard fall, uh, double skin knees, no fun. After skinning both of my knees, I, I remember running to my dad, tears rolling down my cheeks. And I'll never forget what my dad did in that moment. He got up and he moved toward me. And with a quiet strength, he got down on my level, he pulled me into his arms, and he just held me, gave me a hug. That is our Heavenly Father's instinct with us, too. God isn't frustrated with your pain. You have a loving Father who can't bear to hold himself at a distance from you when you are in trouble, when you are in pain. Here's how one author puts it. He says, in our pain, he is pained. 
In our, in our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your rope this morning. I don't know. Maybe you feel really weary and broken, defeated right now. If this is you this morning, this promise, verse 18, is for you. Christian, rest in it. Hang on to it. The Lord is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus sees you. He hears you. And he will not abandon you in your distress. How can we be sure of this? How do we know that this is true? Like because our hope whether our lives are messy or not, is tethered to the one who was forsaken on a tree for us. It's tethered to the one who, with his dying breath, cried out to his father, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to know what it felt like, what it meant to be abandoned by the father. But more than this, we can be sure that God won't forsake us in our pain because the father didn't forsake his only son for long. He didn't leave his son in a dark, dingy tomb. You can be sure that God won't forget you, that he won't abandon you, that he won't leave you in your pain because God raised his son up. He raised his son up from the dead. And that brings us to the last thing that David wants to impress on us this morning. He wants to anchor us to our greatest hope by helping us look beyond our present circumstances to the greater deliverance that he will bring one day. Let's pick up verse 19. David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them. Stop there. You know life is hard. You know life is full of trouble. It's full of pain. But rest assured, David says, Affliction doesn't get the final word in your life. God does. And he promises that one day he is going to deliver you from all of your pain. If if we were to take time and just flip to the end of the story, we would see that one day Jesus is going to do this for his people. Jesus is going to do this for his people. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will, a familiar passage to us, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Affliction loses. Jesus wins, and in the end, so do we. Keep reading, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. He's just saying here, God has you. Even in your darkest days, he's got you. What's interesting is that these words, excuse me, these words are picked up later on by John and applied to Jesus himself at his crucifixion. Even in the face of a brutal death on a cross, God kept his son's bones from being shattered. Not one of them was broken. The father cares for his own son in his darkest day. He's going to care for you in your darkest moments too. 
Verse 21, we touched on this back at verse 16, talks about God's severe and certain judgment of the wicked. Finally, David wraps up this beautiful song of glad praise with some really steadying words of hope. Look at verse 22 with me. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is, he's reaching into the future and he's tethering our hope to the, to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Every close call in this life pales in comparison to the eternal close call that Jesus gave his life to rescue you from. One day, we're all going to stand before God. And I, I don't know what that day is going to look like, but I do know one thing. You're going to want Jesus on your side. You're going to want Jesus on your side when that day comes. You're going to want the Redeemer standing between you and the Father on that day. The one who, the only way that we can escape God's severe judgment against our sin on that day is if we've taken refuge in the sinless Savior. The one that, that Paul will later say, for our sake was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who Peter then would go on and say, one who bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. No one, no one, no one who takes refuge in this man will be condemned. Or as Paul puts it, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? The Lord has been so good to us in giving us Jesus. So come, savor Jesus for who he is and not just what he has delivered you from, but what he has delivered you to. Life forever with him.